lucky am I? I get to preach after Broadway. God knows my people. Oh, my goodness. That is too good. Oh, so powerful. This is the story we enter. It's what makes Broadway so good. It's what makes us laugh at a crazy cheese commercial. Because it's so real. It draws us in. Joseph's story. Our story. God's story. Born in our hand, the very promise of life. The children of Israel are not alone. And yet faced immediately with adversity and challenge in our life. The door seeming closed in our very face. You see, Joseph, he's... He's born into this space where he's handed this gift of life and he's feasting on it, nibbling away at the little delicacy of that blessing. Gives us a little wink. He's on top of the world. His coat, his dream, his blessing is sitting on a hotbed, a trap. And that trap is the very social systems of oppression and repeated family dysfunctions that we're all born into. You see, we're born into a story that's already in progress. It's already moving. So we're trying to enjoy and believe that promise of hope. But generations, families before us have wrestled with that same promise and have many times lived as if it wasn't true for them. But Joseph has heard those stories from his past. We have heard these stories. Somewhere Joseph breathes those in and he gets some kind of supernatural strength. to bench press that oppression off of his very neck. This is our story. This is God's story. The blessing, the promise, in suffering. As the story goes, the promise remains. Will you pray with me? Gracious and amazing God, oh, we are gathered here today to experience you and that love to remind ourselves of that very promise and today we want to engage our faith and so we ask that you will help us do that work we're so blessed God that you have planted us in this very family to do that work together and that you have breathed life into this very church and planted us in this community so that as we engage it and experience it, we can leave and truly embody your love into the world. Be with us this day as we listen to our stories. In Jesus' name, amen. What a story. What a truth. You know, on Monday, we uh, were so blessed indeed to have our nation recognize a great leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., his birthday was, has become a national holiday. And how fitting, truly how fitting, that on that day, it ended up that we were, 
You know, it's been 45 years since his leadership of the American Civil Rights Movement. But on that day, Barack Obama was sworn in to his second year of presidency. It's a powerful. Dr. King had 13 years leading that dream, leading that cause from December of 1955 to April 4th, 1968, but yet his leadership and his impact into our community has progressed and moved the equality and racial equality of African Americans more than the 350 years prior to that. That's an amazing story of a leader. And today we're wrestling with the story of another leader, Joseph, who we know indeed has had some of the same kind of impact on his people and his community. Both great leaders that we can study. And you just don't get familiar with their story without hearing the mantra, I have a dream. Dr. King's dream, of course, is that all would be free that all would experience access and justice. That dream comes because he was grounded in his own faith. He believed that was God's dream for all people. Joseph, on the other hand, did you hear that dream? That dream seemed to be about power. It seemed to be a, that he would indeed be the one in power, and others would bow to him. Is it, as that Broadway tune suggests, that any dream will do? Dreams are so powerful because dreams give us an as-is scenario. It gives us something to see. And if the dreamer holds this dream with great importance or with great conviction, they, they began to see it more as a vision than a dream. They began to live into it. The decisions that they make and the choices that they make are living into as if that dream is real because they believe that it is. Dreams as if scenarios. Now, of course, for Dr. King and Joseph, both of their dreams are grounded in the conviction of God's blessing in their life, God's presence in their life, in their family's life, in their community's life. They rise up from the stories. They've heard the stories. We've heard the stories. The Bible tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So these dreams that Dr. King and Joseph have, while they seem very different, their dreams or their assurance and their hope is grounded in the conviction of God's presence, God's promise. And that gives them the ability in times of crisis, adversity, to see other options it's as if that, that conviction puts them in their own principle. They trust God and get some kind of supernatural strength to overcome great odds. But what about those brothers? What about those brothers? Why 
Why, why, why did Joseph's dream become their biggest nightmare? And he was a bit of a tattletale. <laughs> I was the youngest. I know what that must have been. Now I got a good look at it. Now I understand, understand, understand. He was a bit of a tattletale. But what about his dream caused him to react with such hatred, such insanity, such a moment of confusion, really, hatred? I would contend that those brothers found themselves living an as-if scenario as well. I would contend that they had somehow also created a storyline, maybe from their experiences, maybe from some kernel of truth. But somehow they had used this new storyline to replace their conviction, their principle, their promise of God's presence in their life. I would contend that this as-if scenario had become so real for them that they began to live into it and make it even more real. There's a fancy term for this. It's called self-sabotage. We began to predict an outcome and then find ourselves moving into it. You get a new relationship, seems to be going well, but that relationship's not going to work. And then it doesn't. You get that new job, the one that you've been praying for and believing in, and then somehow or another you tell yourself, yeah, I don't think this one's going to work out. And then it doesn't. You know why this is so seductive, this self-sabotage? Because at least we get to be right. <laughs> I love being right. Almost in control. You see, this as-if scenario these brothers were living into was the fear, the underlying fear, anxiety, that they were not enough that they were not deserving somehow, or that it wasn't real somehow, this Father's love, this promise, this blessing. Joseph's story as the beloved was being internalized as their story of the unloved and the victim, the marginalized. And then they lived into it for a period of time. This is such a struggle for us. But what, what's the hope? What's the way to regain the real truth of who we are? How do we lift that bar off of our neck? I would suggest that the first act of co-creating a new dream is forgiveness. We have to forgive ourselves. We have to learn to forgive others. And it's only then when we let 
go of that identity that has pressed upon us for too long that we regain the strength to move forward in our lives, to undo repeated patterns. I'm trying to suggest that you have to let it go. This identity of self, this judgment you have placed on yourself that has tainted your view of who you are, that has tainted your view of who your neighbor is, your enemy, your friend. I am trying to suggest that you have to say to yourself and be willing to let it go, your identity as the one who didn't get their fair share. Your identity of self that was unloved, let it go. Your identity of yourself as the one who grew up poor, let it go. Your identity of the one who was bullied, let it go. And stand in the conviction of your promise given to you, handed to you, and let go the hand-me-down fears that you were born into. This is a powerful story of the power of as is. I was so blessed Monday night at a board meeting that Van English brought our devotional, and he brought in this story that I think tells so much this power of living as if I want to share it with you now it's a it's a story actually from Scott Peck it's called the rabbi's gift I had to take some creative liberties though um, you know to protect the innocent <laughs> the story concerns a church that had fallen upon hard times once a great church but due to waves of economic downturns and rise of secularism in the 20th century many of its sister churches were losing members and were suffering from shrinking funds. There were only six monks left in this decaying mother church, the abbot and five others, all feeling the weight of the unknown future of this great church and denomination that had stood for years as co-creator of God's realm of peace, a true heaven on earth. Clearly, it was an uncertain time. In the deep woods surrounding this church, there was a little rundown gym that a rabbi from a nearby town occasioned to uh, engage his faith. And as this rabbi came and said in the gym, the abbot got a great idea uh, and was agonizing over the uncertainty and said, I'm going to go visit the rabbi and ask for advice. The rabbi welcomed the abbot, but when the abbot explained the purpose of her visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with her. Yeah, I know how it is, he exclaimed. Finances are tough, buildings are old. Dreams are big, yet anxiety is high. So the old abbot and the old rabbi, they wept together, and they read parts of the Torah and quietly spoke of deep things. And the time came for them to leave, so they embraced each other. But the abbot said, I have failed, though, in my purpose for visiting you. Is there nothing you can tell me, no piece of advice you can give me that would help me save this church? No, I am sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the church, the other monks gathered around her, and they said, well, what did the rabbi say? 
He couldn't help. The abbot shook her head. The only thing he did say, and it was just as I was leaving, it was a bit cryptic, but he said that the Messiah was one of us. I don't really know what he meant. In the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered if there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah? One of us? Could he possibly have meant one of us monks here in the church? If that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Yes, he meant the abbot. She's been in leadership for a decade or so. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. We know Brother Thomas. He beats to a drum, a different drum. He's a holy man. Certainly he could not have meant Sister Elred. Elred gets all up in our business at times. But come to think of it, even though she's a thorn in people's sides, Elred is virtually always right, often very right. Maybe the rabbi did mean Sister Elred. Or I wonder if he meant Brother Peter. Peter's always asking us if we got love, ensuring that we love our neighbor as ourselves. But surely not. Sister Phyllis. Phyllis is so passive, but then, almost mysteriously, she has a gift for somehow always being there when you need her, just magically appearing by your side. Maybe Phyllis is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly admit me. I'm just an ordinary music man who loves to inspire others with Broadway show tunes. Yet suppose he did. Suppose I am the Messiah. Oh, God, not me. I couldn't be that for you, could I? As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one among them might be the Messiah. And on the off-off chance that one of them might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest in which this church was situated was beautiful, people still came to visit and study in that old gym and connect and serve at some of the church functions and go into the sanctuary to worship and pray. And as they did so, even without being conscious of it, they sensed the aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround those six monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of that place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. And hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the church more and more frequently to study, to play, to work, to pray. People began to bring their friends and show them this special place, and their friends brought their friends. And then it happened. Some of the younger people began to visit in the church, and they began to talk more and more with the old monks, and after a while, one young man, Brother Troy, asked if he could join them. And then another, and then another. And within a few years, the church had once again become a thriving center of inclusivity. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, a true heaven on earth and a voice of light and love in the world. People of resurrection, 
any dream will do when it's convicted and grounded in the truth of who you are. A beloved child of God. And when you let it fall away, anything that tells you otherwise, when you let that fall away, you regain the supernatural strength and empowerment to lift yourself from that oppression. And you're given enough strength to go and help your brother or your sister do the same. Maybe so for us. Amen.